Welcome to 900 Acklin Avenue. This is the podcast for the Acklin Avenue Church of Christ. What follows is the service from September 19th, 2021. Thank you and God bless. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Acklin. Great to see everybody here. We thought we were going to be late. I think we've got a few stragglers, maybe, and maybe a few that uh, weren't able to make it. But we won't be able to sing today, so uh, that's okay. Buffers out. Glad to see everybody this morning. Clay's not here, so I'm going to ask you to read the opening scripture. Open us with a prayer. The opening scripture is from Isaiah uh, 2nd chapter 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Our Lord, our God, You alone are our King. Your Son has been established as the King of all nations. Through the divinity line that you chose to be once and forever our King. We come here today to pray to you to worship you as our God. And never shall we ever say that anyone else is our King or our God, even as your chosen people some 700 years after these words were written in Isaiah that your people said, we have no other king than Caesar. May we forever know that we are your people and we have no other king but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have no other God but you. For your love and your mercy and your sacrifice, that have reconciled us to you and made us your people. We offer all our thanks and in return all our love and dedication and devotion to you. And we fall before your throne this morning to offer our worship and our praise and our love to you our Father and our God. And through your Son, we pray for you. Happy 
reading from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations, God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. We pray with you, please. Dear God, thank you for this morning, for the rain. Help us to see it as a blessing, even as it changes plans. Pray especially today for those who are unhoused and in this weather. Pray that you will show us how to be, be your feet and your hands in this world for people who are on the margins. Show us how to truly, truly love and what it means to bring good news to the poor. Help us to remember that as we start this new week, you are in all the places we are going. You are already there, places we are dreading, places we're excited about. Just help us to remember that you wait there for us. Thank you for being sovereign. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. It's made it here on this rainy day and indeed uh, a rainy weekend. We're always grateful for everyone's flexibility uh, and all that it means to be church in these times. So last week I began uh, a three-week series and, uh, and what I said last week was we try really hard here at Ackland to not be overly reactive to the news of the day. Uh, and not just kind of swing the hip at whatever's going on. But there's just been some things that have been larger in our culture the last five to 10 years that we wanted to speak to. And so we're seeking to, to speak to those things uh, in this series. So last week kind of set that up. I embraced the biblical theme of exile. We read several scriptures about exile. And we talked about how followers of Jesus will never completely fit in into the categories of this world. So if you've ever found yourself thinking, there are all these options, and I don't know that any of them fit me exactly. Well, yes, because a follower of Jesus will never fit in exactly. Yet, we must not fall into despair or cynicism. Uh, and despair and cynicism is all around us, but we must not fall into that. As Jesus says, rather we must be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And we talked about that last week as we must maintain purity and holiness, and yet we must be flexible and nimble in this pluralistic world to where we go out and we form wise partnerships to seek the common good in this world, while always, first and foremost, being people of Jesus, and yet being nimble and flexible as we seek wise partnerships. We must seek the kingdom of God while not falling into the idols of our age. And specifically last week I introduced what I believe two of the great temptations and two of the great idols of our age. And I identified those as Christian nationalism and secular humanism. So in two weeks, um, I'm gonna preach on secular humanism. Next week, a friend of mine has come in to guest preach. Uh, Leonard Allen will be here and he's gonna preach on the Holy Spirit. You may remember that we did his book a few years ago. And there's actually some extra copies on the back table if you want to grab one of those books. But he's going to be here next week. So in two weeks, talk about secular humanism. Today, we're going to talk about Christian nationalism. So 
I find the term Christian nationalism a little hard to pin down at times. As a devoted Christian who loves my nation, I find the term is sometimes applied to anyone who believes the Christian faith has social implications. I do believe the Christian faith has social implications, and I don't think everyone that believes that is a Christian nationalist. I think that's a little unfair. On the other hand, I think the, the term is sometimes so narrowly defined is to only involve those uh, who resort to violent extremism, and I think that's a little too narrow. I think there's probably a little more folks that need to be uh, indicted. So this morning, and I kind of say this tongue-in-cheek, I'm trying to offend people, but I'm trying to offend the right amount of people <laughs> this morning, and, uh, and probably for myself somewhat as well. Um, Christian nationalism can show up in varying degrees, from subtle, very problematic references to very troubling movements. And so I'd like to set it up this way, and the following illustration is not necessarily uh, Christian nationalism, although it can be, but it, rather it kind of describes when I first started having some of my thoughts about this. So in the days after 9-11, um, the New York Yankees started playing God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch. And I lived a couple hours from New York City at the time, and I would try to go down to a Yankee game uh, once, about once a year, always hoping they would lose, but I would try to go down about once a year to, to a Yankee game. And I remember the first time I was there and they played God Bless America. Now at this time, um, I, like you, I was wrestling with a lot of things, very existential questions, and I was engaged, about to get married when all that happened, so just thinking about a, a lot of things, and probably like you, I definitely found solace in my faith, uh, and solace with, uh, with, with Christian symbols and, uh, and Christian worship. And so I remember the first time I heard God Bless America played at a baseball game, I felt this overwhelming sense of comfort. Like, it really meant a lot to me, and I found um, a lot of solidarity uh, with everyone in the stands singing God Bless America as well. And as someone that believes in God, as someone that's a citizen of America, I, I was very soothed by that song. And yet, I also remember a couple years later when they were still playing God Bless America, seventh inning stretch, that I had this experience. Um, I looked around and thought, are we all thinking the same thing when we sing the song, God Bless America? Because I had been watching people in my section, and many of them were intoxicated and had been yelling uh, curse words most of the game. And uh, is, is this what we mean by God Bless America? And I was noticing the way individuals were dressed, various necklaces and tattoos, but also just an understanding of the social demographics of the time. I'm like... In my section, there are many types of Christians, but also Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and people that, that don't identify with any religious tradition. So what, what, what is it that we're exactly doing? We don't all think of the same thing when we, we think of God, because some would sing that with the Christian understanding of God, some with the Jewish understanding of God, some would say God is the law, uh, some would say this is really just kind of an ooey-gooey American cultural thing that makes us feel better. And then we've seen the rise of people that say just the mention of God anywhere in the public square is very offensive. And what does it mean to ask God to bless America? Does that mean America's going to do this and God, we want you to bless it? <laughs> or is this saying God bless us by leading us to revival? God bless us by making us like you? Because definitely the United States has done some things that I hope God blesses. And the United States has done some things that I'm, I'm very doubtful God has blessed that because, because it was wrong. And so I began to slowly be aware that there are greater things going on. And so I started to wonder, and if this seems overly cynical, I apologize. Who is benefiting by the playing of God Bless America? And I'm not opposed to the song God Bless America. But who's benefiting? And, and it struck me then that the greatest beneficiaries of the song were America and, and Major League Baseball. And that, that God was a distant third in terms of who I thought was benefiting from that song.
So, have you ever been in an experience where at first, as a Christian, you're encouraged by the, the pious references, but then you slowly think, maybe there's something else going on here. And maybe it's not necessarily wrong, but you're like, the door has opened for something that could be potentially problematic. So maybe you were at a political rally where there was very much a mix of the flag and the cross and all these things going on. Or maybe you were in a Christian worship service or were part of a church where the American flag was very prominently displayed. Maybe you were at a church gathering. Um, and, and this happens when we go to Bible Bowl. Um, we, we pray, we sing a hymn, but they also do the Pledge of Allegiance at Bible Bowl. And, and once again, I'm not saying they've stopped doing that, but every time that's, that's done, I always think, this is really interesting, you know. Um, or have you ever been in a worship service where people talked about taking Jesus to the public square, but then they have, end up quoting the Bill of Rights a lot more than the Sermon on the Mount? And you start to think, who is really winning in this type of expression? So, Christian nationalism is a framework that prioritizes the country over the kingdom of God. It uses the Christian faith to seek to bring about a particular understanding of America. One of the biggest things, if you're trying to notice it and see it, one of the biggest things you'll find is Christian nationalism possesses a utilitarian streak, meaning the, the means justify the end. So Christian nationalists are often comfortable with using means that are not aligned with the Bible and that are not aligned with Jesus to achieve what they say is a very um, merited end of some type of Christian America. So there's always, uh, there's just frequently a means justify the end type of thing going on. It puts the Christian faith in the center of American life, not necessarily to help people live like Jesus, but to create a strong nation. Now, this is not new in the history of the Christian faith. Moreover, we see it in the Bible with the response that many Jews had to Jesus in the first century. Did they want to maintain their idea of a powerful Jewish nation, or did they want to participate in the transnational kingdom of Jesus? Many chose their hope of a powerful Jewish nation and ironically clung to their Roman oppressor and rejected their Savior Jesus. They valued the nation more than the kingdom. So our gospel reading today is John chapter 19. It's inside our bulletin. If you want to stand with me for the reading, John chapter 19. If you'd like to join with me in the bold section, feel free. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Together? When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, 
which in Aramaic is Kabbatham, together. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. You may be seated. So notice how their lust for power compels them to completely compromise themselves. I mean, they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy, and then they commit blasphemy by saying, we have no king but Caesar. And it's one of the saddest parts of the Bible for me. But it demonstrates how their thirst for Jewish nationalism caused them to miss what Jesus had called them to be. Now, would there be differences between an ancient understanding of Jewish nationalism and modern understanding of Christian nationalism today? Certainly, but I think it's close enough that we can see some parallels. So Christian nationalism is like this type of thing. It's a cultural framework that idolizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. And once again, as I said, said last week, let me remind us what it is not. To desire that there would be more Christians in America does not make you a Christian nationalist. To desire that the United States acted more like Jesus does not make you a Christian nationalist. Instead, Christian nationalism elevates the country over the faith and uses the faith as a means towards achieving that end. Faith becomes a type of lucky charm towards getting there. It is America first and Christianity second. And as we said last week, if Christianity is second, is it still Christianity? Let me be clear. Christian nationalism is heretical and it's hypocritical, just like the reaction to Jesus in John 19. A frequent mantra of Christian nationalism is taking back America for God. So that should also, if you're looking for signals of, of, of when people are just kind of fusing patriotism with faith and when it's really starting to, to go towards Christian nationalism, look for slogans like take America back for God or the utilitarian street, um, or as we'll say in a few minutes, when Old Testament Israel and the United States start getting compared to one another. So, taking back America for God, of course, assumes that America was once God's country and assumes an American founding based on Christianity. So, in contrast, those with very different perspectives from a secular perspective would argue for a secular view of America's founding. And you've seen these things debated in the public square many times. The history of this country is complex and probably doesn't fit neatly into any of those categories. Was America founded as a Christian nation? Well, on one hand, most everyone who founded this nation would have identified as a Christian. And certainly, there are well-known uh, immigrants early on that came here for reasons of religious liberty and Christian liberty. And um, certainly, you can point to, to many in the founding who were very pious individuals that would be worthy of admiration. On the other hand, the Constitution makes no mention of God, Jesus, or the Bible. And many key founding fathers were more deist than what we think of as Christian. And the easiest way to understand deism is, is the frequent illustration of the watchmaker. So God is the watchmaker that winds the clock, but then just kind of lets go. And it's a God that is not imminent, not involved with this world. Also, many of the founding fathers... Um, were very suspicious towards the supernatural parts of the Bible, specifically the miracles and the resurrection uh, of Jesus. And you can count people like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin kind of chief on that list. One of the interesting things to me is um, historians and sociologists estimate that more Americans participate in church now than in the generation that founded the country. And I know we bemoan that it's a declining amount of people that participate in church nowadays but most think it's still higher than the founding generation. They were not a very um, pious generation. So America experienced the first Great Awakening in the 1730s, 1740s. Well-known figure Jonathan Edwards there. That was a very high time of religious revival. And then in the early 19th century, early 1800s, experienced the second Great Awakening. 
And, and that was actually, Churches of Christ originated in that movement. So the parents of the founders and the kids of the founders were a lot more pious. So for those of you that were into Hamilton um, and became very familiar with Aaron Burr, you remember that Aaron Burr's grandfather was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was far from a perfect man. But you can see in the Jonathan Edwards-Aaron Burr comparison that Aaron Burr was not a practicing Christian, but a good singer, apparently. Anyway, so um, in my view, America was a country founded by many who identified as Christian, by many who inconsistently practiced discipleship, and intentionally formed a secular government void of any religious litmus test. Now I want to add this. I'm grateful for America. If I uh, was put in, in a time capsule and put back and looked at the various governments of the day, I would say this about the United States at that time. It was very innovative, even if very imperfect, and uniquely hopeful, even if, if flawed, when you consider the governments of the age. So when someone says they want to take America back for God, they normally have an overly optimistic and romanticized view of the founding. And the other thing they do, and I referenced this a second ago, Christian nationalists very much like to take Old Testament passages about Israel and apply them to the United States. Whereas I would be one of those Christians who believes the church is the new Israel. And when you, you see Old Testament Israel, it's foreshadowing the church. Christian nationalists often take those passages and try to directly apply them to the United States. And that's always a key thing to pick up on. Moreover, they talk a lot about how the church can change America and bring about a better America. I would love to see our, the church make America a better society. And yet, the church has a laser focus on spreading the kingdom of God, not particularly in one country. You can recognize Christian nationalism by motivation and means. And once again, the motivation is to return to, to a certain type of Christian America. I'm going to go off my notes for a second. When I say a certain type of Christian America, that includes a lot of different postures and a lot of various things. But one of the things we've got to be very honest about, the return to a specific type of Christian America turns out to be very white. Okay. I also want to tell you that when we talk about secular humanism in two weeks, secular humanism is very white too. So both of these kind of temptations um, are things that, that trend white, and there's various reasons for that. But I'm Christian nationalism very often has a racist element to it that needs to be included in this. Christian nationalism often turns the church into a type of chaplain and cheerleader for the nation. The role of the church is to come in and kind of get people unified and get people experiencing social solidarity and popular support for policies and then to hand it over to the politicians. And, and I've seen images of, of faith leaders who I follow their work and I like it, what, what did they say? And then they're kind of standing in the background very silently as things are being espoused that do not fit with their overall body of work throughout their ministry. So once again, this is a utilitarian type of thing where there's various compromises going on for a sense of America. Why is this dangerous? And I've, I've searched for the right illustration to use, and I hope this is not overly offensive. But you ever have a friend that starts to date someone, and uh, the person they're dating, and I'm putting this in quotes, they're crazy, right? And... Um, like not mental health type of thing, but just like they're kind of, you know, crazy, crazy girlfriend, crazy boyfriend. And you go up to them and say, hey, like, not trying to get in your business, but um, like, I don't know about this. And then they kind of do one of these. Well, and they don't say it in so many words, but they're like, I'm going to change them. Right. You ever heard that thing? I I'm going to change them. But what you see happens over time is. They are unable to change them, but instead, they become changed themselves by this quote-unquote crazy person. The toxic nature of Christian nationalism 
is that when it becomes fused in this way, Christians very rarely change the nation, but the nation ends up changing Christianity. And it, it waters it down and it takes the edges off, and oftentimes it even makes it into something that's the antithesis of what Jesus talked about. That's what's so, it, it starts off very subtle, but that's what's so problematic about it, is it changes our faith. So what does the Bible say? Instead of nationalistic glory, God invites us into a transnational kingdom that encompasses every tongue and tribe. In Genesis 12, when God chose Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But it wasn't just about one nation. Because he tells Abraham in Genesis 12, through you, all peoples will be blessed. Ancient Israel was not chosen just to be this, this chosen precious thing that was a great nation at the expense of everyone else. As the prophet Isaiah says, they were meant to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. So as Nigel read this morning in Isaiah 2, all nations would stream to Zion not for the glory of Israel, but for the glory of God. When Jesus comes, he ushers in a kingdom that threatens Jewish nationalism. That's why so many of them responded the way they did. But in his relationship with the Samaritans and his references to the Gentiles, he shows that it's never about just any one people. We see this at Pentecost, when the tongues of fire come down and all these different nation groups hear the Holy Spirit in their own language. And we see this in our closing reading, when Peter looks at the Holy Spirit coming down on Cornelius and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. For several hundred years, Christianity grew and thrived amid condescension and persecution as a faith not associated with any one people group or with any one land. But then, in the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine identified as Jesus, and for various reasons over a short time period, the majority of the Roman Empire was Christian. And that's when something began to happen that was brand new for the Christian faith and very different and something we struggle with today. Because suddenly the Christians were the majority, sometimes the Christians were in charge. And they had to, they had to make a key decision. What is more important? The purity of the faith or the strength of the empire? The purity of the faith or the strength of the empire? And so often... Throughout history, when Christians have that choice, they choose the strength of the empire. <coughs> Lee Camp, in his book, Mere Discipleship, refers to this as the Constantinian cataract, where the thirst for nation, the thirst for empire, and the strength of nation and empire clouds our vision, and we see things through the lens of the country instead of seeing things through the lens of the faith. And that's what's going on, where someone you love so much tries to convince you that certain amendments take precedent over the New Testament. And you're like, how can they say that? How can they do that? Because the Constantinian cataract is clouding their vision. In Constantinianism, faith is used to baptize things that are contrary to Jesus. Before concluding, I would like to express some qualifications. I don't think it's bad to have nations. And I do think the trends of globalism have, have hurt many people. I understand why some people are upset about that. I think a dose of patriotism in non-idolatrous ways can be very helpful. I like to wear red, white, and blue sometimes. I still get a kick out of it when America beats Russia in the Olympics, right? Um, I think that type of thing is fun. And I think borders can be good at times when it's a border between me and my neighbor, when it's a border between Davidson and, well, let's just go ahead and say it, Williamson County. <laughs> that was to lighten the mood, okay? Or even America and Canada. Borders can be good for delineating roles and responsibilities as long as those borders are seeking to contribute to the flourishing of all people. I think communities need various forms of social solidarity to flourish. I would love to see more people follow Jesus, and I'd love to see our nation act more like, like Christ. But I believe Christian nationalism is incredibly 
dangerous and incredibly idolatrous. I believe Christian nationalism creates very unhealthy us versus them scenarios. I believe it waters down discipleship. I see why we have nations in this age, but I'm more interested in the kingdom of the next age, especially as I seek for that kingdom to come alive more in this world. As I read the Bible, I'm puzzled by many things, specifically many things around the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm puzzled by their cry of, we have no king but Caesar. And I'm also confused by their desire to free Barabbas. You remember that story, right? When given the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, they, they want to see Barabbas free. And Barabbas was an insurrectionist. And he probably fed into their desires for nationalism. And there were probably some things about him that just more aligned with what they wanted than Jesus. And that was a temptation for them, and it may be a temptation for us. And it may be a temptation for those that you love. Because sometimes we see people who seem like great people, who seem like godly people, and there might have been times in our life that we sat at their feet and they told us about Jesus. And then suddenly they cry out for Barabbas. And you're like, what in the world is going on? And you may feel repulsed by it. But instead, instead of feeling repulsed by it, can we channel love? Instead of disgust, what of our response was evangelism? And instead of rotting them off, what of our response was to share the gospel with them? Because it could be that one of the greatest challenges for us the next few decades is to go for our friends who are both Christian nationalists or at least tempted by Christian nationalism and to share the gospel with them because they have lost sight of it. And I will say the same thing about secular humanism in two weeks. And I know that's easier, it's easy to say, hard to do. Besides others, we may find that it tempts our hearts as well. So in conclusion, let me offer three ways to avoid this idolatry. Three things that have been helpful for me is I've tried to avoid this idolatry in my life. First, regularly reflect on this. I ask myself, what am I more into? Am I more into the country or the kingdom? If I look at the podcast I listen to, if I look at my news feed, if I look at what do I talk about when I'm with my friends on Friday night? Am I excited about the growth of the kingdom of God, or am I just into the latest political scuttlebutt? Okay, and I know those things matter. I'm not saying they don't matter. But what are we more interested in, the kingdom or the country? Second, someone asked me this question seven or eight years ago, and it was very transformative. They said, JP, are you an American that just so happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian? It just so happens to be an American. And look in the mirror every so often and ask yourself that. And you'll learn a lot from that question. And then thirdly, here's what every single, every single person in this room needs. You need a trusted Christian friend that's not an American or maybe has not always been an American. Because I find they can see this in ways that I can't. Because I was raised with, you know, the flag and apple pie and the seventh inning stretch of Major League Baseball and all that type of stuff. But your Christian friends who have not always been American or maybe have never been American, they can see this. Because I'll never forget being at a Christian worship service around July 4th, about a decade ago. And we were reading scripture, and there were sermons, and there was teachings, and we sang Amazing Grace. And then suddenly, from the ceiling, this American flag slowly came down out of nowhere. And we went straight into some type of patriotic song. And I was like, this is awesome. And I, I glanced out of the corner of my eye, and the look, my friend that was not in America was like, what in the world just happened? And you'd probably think the same thing if you were in Malaysia or Australia or Russia and you went to church and then suddenly they started waving the flag of their country and they all started getting excited and you would be like, am I a part of this? What's going on? I don't know why I'm blaming the Australians. Anyway. If I hadn't been sitting with that friend that day, I might have missed that. 
and the look on their face tell me that might not be Christian nationalism, but it was at least opening the door in a way that can be problematic. Last paragraph. I'm sorry this was longer. And you knew this was coming. On January 6th, a mob illegally entered the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to prevent Congress from formalizing the election of the president. And I'm not sure that everyone in that group was a Christian nationalist, but the signs referencing the name of Jesus told us that at least some of them were. And in this way, it's probably the most high, highest profile act of Christian nationalism, at least in recent memory. January 6th was a Wednesday, and the Ackland schedule called us to do our weekly Zoom gathering. And everyone pretty much hated the Wednesday Zoom by that time. It's kind of a joke. Not everyone hated it. Because all the Christmas excitement was over, and we all had Zoom fatigue, and COVID was raging then in early January, and nobody wanted to get on the Zoom that night. But we were scheduled to meet with High Byron and Snazana, our missionaries from Guatemala. And not many showed up for the Zoom that night, and I totally understand it. Everybody was just kind of in a fog about all the weird stuff that had happened that day. But I got on that Zoom that night because I felt like I had to. And it was one of the most important hours of my life. Because I was so just confused and frustrated and didn't completely know what was going on in this country. But yet... I hung out with people from Guatemala, and and they're not native Guatemala, but they, they're Guatemalan, right? And um, they've lived there many years. And we talked a little bit about what was going on in our country, and uh, I mean, how Byron met in the Navy. I mean, this, this is important to them, what was happening. And yet, um, we prayed, and then we moved on, and we started talking about what was happening in the church in Guatemala. And uh, we started getting excited about that, and we started praying about it. And I realized that the affections of my heart are too often nearsighted. And there is something beyond that. And we have been invited into something larger than this country, in this nation. I don't know what's going to ultimately happen in the United States. And it hits a point where I'm not 100% concerned because we are part of the global church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And that is the identity that we've been called on. And that night reminded me that. Someday, every knee will bow and the entire world, every nation will say, we have one king, no king, but Jesus. So the call for us is to go ahead and do that now. spiritual guide, um, he, he told me where you start, like where you want to start in the Bible is Abraham. You want to jump in there, you know, you know the story of Adam and Eve, you have this thing, start with Abraham. Um, and so there's this great testimony of faith that Abraham has where his name is Abram and God says, hey, leave everything, I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, you won't be able to count the amount of people that are going to come from you. Uh, this is my promise to you. And he says, okay. And 
you know, with a couple of hitches here and there, leaves everything behind, takes his wife, and journeys to a place he's never been before. Uh, one of my favorite verses comes from that, it's Genesis 15, 6, where it just says simply, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And uh, what the translation of what that was to me was, hey, you're doing the right thing. Uh, you're doing the right thing here following me. And so that happens kind of throughout Abraham's story as he kind of falters, ultimately finds his way back to, I'm going to trust God. He does it with Isaac. He does it in Egypt. He, he finally figures out, okay, I'm going to trust God, and God reckons it to him as righteousness said and, and affirms, you're doing the right thing here. Uh, and there's this kind of compelling story that's happening here that leads you to Jesus, uh, that leads you to the identity that there's this promise and that everyone's a part of it, that Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel, what's happened, what God starts with Abraham, with Jesus, opens it up to everybody. Gives, gives everyone the heir to, the accord, to be according to that promise that Abraham had all those years ago. Um, and so often, as you're walking through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to, to Moses, to da through, from David to Moses, there are constant times, every single step of the way, the people forget um, they forget of that prom they forget that promise they forget the understanding of it that God has made made a promise to them that is bigger than anything that they could experience they get nervous they they see they can only see what's directly in front of them and they see suffering they see nations conquering them they see um, their Savior being crucified. It, there's this kind of constant thing in front of us that is stopping us from remembering the promise. Um, and it stops us uh, from remembering Jesus. And, uh, that, and we're here to remember. Uh, I, I feel like when I was listening to JP this morning, a lot of what he was telling to me personally was, you forget things a lot. You forget what God's doing. You forget what God has done. Um, you forget who Jesus is. And so I am really glad that we get to gather together and we get to take a plastic cup and a piece of bread and we remember um, that Jesus died, uh, that he rose again, and that he's overcome the world. Um, he's, he's unstoppable. There's nothing in this world uh, that's too great. Um, he's unshakable, and his, his mercy, his love, his compassion for all of us and for people outside of us, outside of our circles, um, is unfathomable. And we're a part of it. So uh, pray with me as we remember this morning. Heavenly Father, you are the unshakable. And because of that, it, is, it, it should seemingly be easy to remember your faithfulness, your goodness, your gentleness. Uh, but we oftentimes forget Thank you for your, your patience with us um, as we grow together in community, as we grow to uh, be a part and an extension of your kingdom, as it grows, um, as it is an unstoppable force, something that is wholly good. Um, thank you for your son who sacrificed his life so that we could have it in abundance. Uh, as we take this cup and eat this bread, uh, remind us of his victory over death. Uh, give us the courage 
to step forward uh, past the distractions uh, to know that he is king. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. closing reading today is Acts 10 verses 34 through 48. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout, throughout the province of Judea beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing who, all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are, witness, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. <coughs> then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our opportunity today to come hear your message. Lord, we, we thank you for the words that were spoken. We thank you for the reminder that your kingdom is above all. And that we should always strive to spread your gospel and your love no matter the the nation the people those that are different from us all should hear the word and we ask that you go with us throughout this week help us to spread that word and that love and we ask that you bring us back together and bless us always in jesus name amen this week. Um, tomorrow is the fifth birthday of Lucas Simon. I know he's not with us, they live in Virginia now, but you know, have a chance to reach out to them. That's a big one. I can't believe he's, uh, he's growing up so fast. Lacey on the 21st, happy birthday. And Caroline Conway on the 22nd, turning double figures. Two hands, that's great. 
the 23rd, Leanne Copeland, and the 25th, Clark Christian. So if you see any of these people, just reach out to them and tell them happy birthday. You know, JP mentioned current events and not overly, you know, overreacting to them. Um, every so often, current affairs kind of align with congregation, I don't know, the best word is objectives, strengths, opportunities. Um, but obviously Afghan refugees and the whole Afghanistan situation has been in the news a lot lately. Um, and several have asked about potential congregational assistance for Afghans coming to the United States and, and probably specifically to this area. Um, and there are several organizations in Nashville that, that work with refugees and we have, we're blessed to have personal connections with a couple um, and we have made them partners, Nations Ministry and Siloam specifically. So uh, uh, the elders and leaders of the congregation are, are, are thinking about this the situation, praying about it. There'll be more to come um, in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Small groups, uh, they did start last week. And uh, you can look on this, you can look at the schedule coming up in the fall. Um, dates going up through November the 21st. The brown bag this Wednesday will be at the Conway's. Uh, bring your dinner and a chair for fellowship and a Devo from 5.30 to 7. And this year's fall bonfire and costume party will be on Sunday, October the 24th, 3.30 to 6.30. Um, there'll be a bonfire with hot dogs and s'mores at the Deloney's Yard in Fairview. And JP, that is across the border in Williamson County. Yeah, across the border that day. Yeah, across the border. <laughs> I would love to see people in Halloween costumes as people normally do at this congregation on that day when we've had it in the past. So, looking forward to that. Another thing to look forward to, we've done this the last couple of years, several people um, here at Ackland have participated, adults and teenagers, specifically over 16, but um, Jill's House was just coming up on December the 3rd through the 5th. And that's an organization that provides, you know, respite care for families that have children with special needs. So it's, it's a really good thing, and I know my son, DJ, has done it a couple times, and he's really, um, Spiritually, I think it's an uplifting thing to see. So um, if you can do that over the age of 16, uh, please see Paul or JP. Vaccination is required. <clears throat> Several on the prayer and praise list. Uh, Mary Ann sent an email about her brother-in-law, Jason. He's been hospitalized with uh, COVID and pneumonia. Uh, please keep him in your prayers. <clears throat> Continue to pray for Christy. Um, with the TBI recovery, and those in cancer treatment, Joyce Rutledge, Marianne Corley, Jane Spivey, Nancy, Shelley, Trudy, Aiden, Brett, and Skyler. And continue to remember our missionaries here um, in the states and abroad. Jason and Emily, Lindsey Krinks, Manuel Perdomo, Hawathia Jones, and Byronis Nazana Benitez. Am I missing anything? Any further announcements yet? Yeah, all of the uh, Benitez's are, are struggling with, with COVID. Uh, there seems to be some improvement there. Kevin uh, Byron uh, this morning, or I guess late last night, kind of maybe started to feel a little better, but still not, not great. But things, things seem stable with the Anything else? Feel free to go downstairs and have coffee and uh, class afterwards. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue. 
a podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash Thanks again for joining us. God bless.